This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to the program, friends. Say hello to uh, my technical producer, David Gaskin. Listeners, David Gaskin, David Gaskin, listeners. Uh, a little um, rushed getting into the studio. Uh, I Just down the hall, there's a, a larger studio, and we were shooting some segments for the, uh, the TV show, uh, The Conspiracy Show. And uh, didn't leave me a lot of time after we were finished there, and I was hungry. So I jumped in the car. I said, David, you know, I've, I've been doing the show here at 550 Queen for th- almost three years. It will be the third anniversary on August the 16th. And uh, I, I haven't even ventured really into the neighborhood because normally I've eaten by the time I get here. But I was hungry. So I said, David, where can I go? And he just pointed that way. So I drove over that beautiful little bridge over the Don River and into uh, well, Queen Street East. And there I found this little... Um, Sushi place, nice little place. And, uh, but you'd think after all these years in broadcasting, I'd know better. I took, I ordered takeout, a steaming container of beef udon noodles. I mean, this thing, it might cool down by the time I turn out the lights and, and say goodnight. <laughs> but what am I going to do with a steaming, I can't eat this. Uh, I'll just slurp it through a straw very quickly during the, uh, the breaks. Uh, if I had to do it all over again, uh, I would have ordered it much earlier. If I had to do it, I, I could do it all over again if we had time machines, of course, right? I could step into a little machine and go back in time. And we're going to talk about, that is my favorite topic, if you didn't know already. Time travel? Come on. Is that not the coolest thing to contemplate, being able to travel backwards and forwards in time? Uh, and uh, we're going to get into that right away. But first, let me welcome another affiliate to the program. Uh, very, very honored and pleased to welcome WIXIAM in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, to The Conspiracy Show. So to all the folks down at WIXIAM, AM, Birmingham, welcome aboard. And uh, we'll just add that to our, our burgeoning list of affiliates, uh, WKACAM in Huntsville, Alabama, and WZGMAM, Asheville, North Carolina, and of course, our flagship station here at the new AM740 Zoomer Radio in Toronto, Canada. All right, let's talk time travel, folks. And uh, we're going to do that with 
this this is um, one of those rare individuals who is able to just churn out quality material. It seems like I'm going to ask her, but I, I'm, I'm betting you she puts out about three great books a year, maybe two, but this is another good one. It's called This Book is from the Future, A Journey Through Portals, Relativity, Wormholes, and Other Adventures in Time Travel. Marie Jones is a best-selling author, screenwriter, researcher, radio show host, and public speaker. She's the author of uh, This Book is from the Future, which I just mentioned, and a whole whack of other great books. Marie Jones, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good. Good to talk to you again. Good to have you on with us once again. Uh, you know, I first got really excited about uh, time travel, like a lot of people, you know, reading H.G. Wells. Uh, uh, and and then I met this gentleman from the University of Connecticut, uh, Professor um, Mallet. Oh, yes. Who's working on a theoretical uh, time machine and, and this, the whole backstory of how, you know, his father, who he just idolized and worshipped, the son you know, rose and set on his father. And when he passed away suddenly in his 30s, in the 50s, um, Ronald Mallet was absolutely devastated. And then he retreated into this world of comic books and started reading H.G. Wells' The Time Machine and figured, if I can build my own time machine, I'll travel back. I, I still get a lump in my throat telling this story. I'll travel back in time to save my father. And right. here is Ronald Mallet now in his 60s, and he still feels the same way. Now he realizes, because of certain paradoxes, he can't travel back in time. To, to, to save his father, but he's still, you know, working away on a theoretical time machine. Exactly. Marie, exactly. when did you first get interested in the, the concept of time travel? Oh, I, since childhood. I was one of those kids that liked science and science fiction stories and, you know, growing up with Star Trek and Star Wars and all the different science fiction movies and TV shows. I mean, it's everywhere. It was in novels and short stories. And I think naturally we're drawn to trying to control things that we can't control. Space, where we're sort of, you know, over my lifetime, I've seen a lot of real wonderful and amazing progress in space travel. But time is the one thing we haven't been able to really do that with yet. So I think it's a it's a human fascination to be able to control time. I think we all inherently want to go back and relive some times from our past or try to change things or see into the future, see what we're going to become or uh, you know what our families will become or what might happen if the world might end. So I think it's part of our humanity, uh, but it's the one thing, too, that really we have not been able to control yet. Uh, we should also point out that uh, you wrote this book along with uh, your co-author, Larry Flaxman. Uh, mm -hmm. Marie Jones is with us. This book is from the future. Uh, I need you to, this, to help me out with something, Marie, because I've every time I, I ask a theoretical physicist or an astrophysicist, I ask him this question, I get a different answer. And maybe you had the same experience. Albert Einstein's Theory of relativity or special theory of relativity. Did it allow or or forbid time travel into the future? Well, it, it's sort of ambiguous because it, without us being able to move beyond the limitations of light speed, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, everything that Einstein did and, and everything that he, uh, all of the laws that he discovered hinted at the possibility certainly there is uh the theory of or not the theory it's actually a law of time dilation and the fact that 
when you're traveling as closer to the speed of light, time will slow down. The problem is, is that we can't go back into the uh, uh, past or into the future without first breaching the speed of light. And that was one of Einstein's biggest challenges. He died before he could figure it out. And we still, you know, after his death, we still haven't figured out that limitation. But everything that he did, you know, his his work with Nathan Rosen in, into wormholes, which were called Einstein-Rosen bridges, all under the, the theory that perhaps these were shortcuts through space and time that could be used. So it's almost like all of the work he did was a part of his desire to see time travel become a reality. Because, you know, he was obsessed, obviously, with space and Time and space are, are interconnected, so therefore he was obsessed with time. But again, always coming up to that light speed limitation, and he died before he could find a way around it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't scientists today or maybe in the near future that will do that. And, and, and time travel to the future is, is obviously the, the big stumbling block because theoretically, not even theoretically, practically, we have proven that time travel to the past, nanoseconds, mind you, but time travel to the past is uh, is feasible. And in fact, we've done it with those, you know, that, that experiment with the big two atomic clocks, right? Right. Well, actually, there have been some experiments with photons, with uh, light particles, where they have sent them into the future. Uh, but again, like you said, you know, a nanosecond of a nano, nano of a nanosecond. And certainly this is on a particle level, and, and in no way can it yet be extrapolated to anything bigger than that. But um, a lot of these physicists believe that time travel to the future is actually more doable because of the paradoxes of if you go back into the past, how do you, you know, what do you do to the, the current timeline? What might you change or how could you change the current timeline? Because if you go back to the past, you're going to affect something. So you have all these paradoxes. Right, the that, grandfather paradox where you accidentally I, run over your granddad, therefore your parents exactly, aren't born, therefore you're not born. Exactly. So future time travel is actually more, I, I don't want to say acceptable, that might not be the right word, but more theoretically doable than traveling back to the past because of all those paradoxes. However, what's really cool, and we wrote a lot about it in the book, is that there is a way around those paradoxes to travel back in the past. And that would be if you were to introduce the idea of parallel universes or the multiverse theory, the idea that there are other timelines, uh, alternate timelines, where you could go back and you could shoot your grandfather and kill him because maybe he's a jerk. <laughs> and in that particular timeline, yes, you would not be born. But in, a, in an offshoot, the multiverse theory proposes that every time uh, there is a decision or choice made, another universe springs forth to accommodate all the other choices and decisions that could have been made. So maybe in timeline A, you're not going to exist. But in timeline B, you will and, and timeline F and G and Z and, you know, on and on. So, but that's all theoretical. It, so that's like the only way around the paradoxes right now is to think of, well, okay, maybe there's more than one timeline. And we can go back and we can mess up one. And it may mess up this future timeline that we're in now, but it won't in other universes, other dimensions, what have you. Not to be a real stickler, Marie, but would that technically be time travel or would you simply be jumping to another dimension? And, and, you know, a multiverse. You're, 
<laughs> you're right, because in the timeline that you're in, you're pretty much voiding your own existence. So yes, it is interdimensional. And what's really cool is that these, again, are ideas that have been present in science fiction forever. So what's real interesting is that then you have science, you have physicists catching up and, and actually looking at the paradoxes that were first introduced in a lot of science fiction and saying, okay, these are real, these paradoxes. How do we get around them? How do we get around causality? The idea that cause and effect, if you go back in time and you change one cause, you're going to change a whole series of follow-up cause and effects from that. Um, I don't know if you've read the book by Stephen King that came out not too long ago. On JFK? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, sort of the what-if type scenarios, if JFK had uh, had lived? Is that, the, is that the same one we're talking about? No, well, what he does is he tells the story of a, of a guy who is given the ability to go back in time and stop the assassination. Right. But what he does is just so brilliantly show how these paradoxes come into play and how you go back in time and think that you're changing something for the betterment of humanity and end up making it much worse. Exactly. Listen, I got to I got to take a time out to Marie. We'll come back on the other side. Marie Jones, this book is from the future. It doesn't matter how you cut it. You, if you travel back in time sooner or later, you're going to have to sit through the ice capades again. That should, <laughs> that should be enough to swear anyone off time travel back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. On Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. David, is that um, is that from Planet of the Apes? Is that John Williams, or it sounds somewhat reminiscent of that? You know that scene in Planet of the Apes, the original, the original movies. You know, where they're racing through the cornfield and the gorillas are on horseback. And um, imagine stepping into a time machine and uh, talk. There's a multiverse scenario from hell, right? Ending up in a Planet of the Apes. Uh, Marie Jones is uh, with us, and the book is This Book is from the Future, A Journey Through Portals, Relativity, Wormholes, and Other Adventures in Time Travel. Uh, the co-author is Larry Flaxman. Marie, you were telling me about uh, Stephen King's, um, uh, one of his, I guess it's his latest book, who knows, what time is yeah. it? it <laughs> uh, well, I, think, I think you might have had another one just yes. recently. Exactly, I mean, in the elevator on the way up to his apartment. Yeah, you know. exactly. Uh, but uh, JFK, and the scenario is someone travels back in time and saves JFK's life, thinking it would be a good idea, but it sets a whole bunch of other things in motion that aren't so good. Right. And the idea also is that, uh, and I won't give away too much, it's just an absolutely amazing book. And, and Stephen King actually did a lot of research and worked with a researcher uh, looking at all the different paradoxes and really getting into them. And it's, it's such a wonderful education. If you don't feel like reading the more physics, nonfiction books, I mean, you could read his book and really get an education on why this is such a problem. Uh, the character in the book at the same time tries to make another small change. So, I mean, you know, stopping an assassination is a big change. And obviously the cause and effect chain that that would create would be massive. 
But he also uh, makes the point of trying to change something very small and personal. And yet that also creates a chain of cause and effect that, that is disastrous. So the whole idea is, can we go back to the past and fix something without breaking the future? And I thought that was just a wonderful way to look at it. We have no idea uh, it, you know, the butterfly effect, the very smallest, most minute change that we might make, how that could snowball and create something that we just can't even imagine in the future. So it's really a good wake up call uh, for the ethics and morality of time travel, which Larry and I talk a lot about in the book, too, because it's not something people think about that often. Well, it's also a a wonderful lesson for just how we conduct our daily lives. If uh, Granted, if you travel back in time, uh, everything you do will have consequences, but that also applies to the here and now. Every, every, everything you do, uh, will, uh, set in motion an incredible, you know, domino effect for good or bad. And it's up to us. And why do, why do most people want to go back in time? They want to fix something. Yeah. Regret. Regret. Don't screw up now. And you won't want to go back to the past 10 years from now and fix, you won't have anything to fix. So it really is about regret and bad decisions and not thinking about what you're doing. And yet also realizing how interconnected everything is. And the idea is that you could go back in time and change something in your life. You could kiss that girl that you always wanted to kiss in high school or, you know, catch that ball in Little League that you dropped, what have you. What you don't realize, though, is how you're affecting everybody around you whose lives, because of those simple things, are also going to be changed. And that's where the idea of ethics comes into play. Do, does anybody have the right to go back in time and change an interconnected web of timelines that are all working together with cause and effect? It's an excellent point, you know, because when we think of the, 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 the grandfather paradox, that's pretty cut and dried. But what you're saying is everywhere you step, if you travel back in time, everywhere you step, you're creating a, a paradox. It's unavoidable. You, there's nothing you can do but create, a, you know, a paradox or potential uh, problems going forward. So it's You're a minefield. It's a minefield. And, yeah, and not doing anything. You're still changing something. You're, you're revisiting the past alone is an act of change. What about mentally traveling back in time, like remote viewers, for example, uh, yes. who, who uh, believe that they can transcend time and space, but they're not physically, let's say someone wants to go back and witness the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to see if it actually happened. And there they are. Um, uh, but it's from what my, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it, it would be like them watching a movie. They're not actually able to manipulate their environment, right. interact with it. So they, they would avoid the paradoxes by remote viewing to the past, correct? I don't know. And here's why. <laughs> the observer effect kicks in, right? Ah, and, and yes. This, and everybody says, oh, okay, well, I just want to go back to the past and I just want to observe. But the act of observation is an act of measurement and quantum physics tells us that that creates a change. So here again, we have the paradox jumping up at us, even if we just want to go back and watch. Uh, that observer effect comes into play. Just the fact that you're going back into the past and 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 observing something that already happened Oh, you know, that act alone is going to change the outcome. However, there is something called chronesthesia, and this is called, that's a name for mental time travel. And there's a lot of research going on. This is so fascinating to me because I really believe that we time travel all the time consciously, you know, in, the, in our conscious minds and our subconscious and dreams and deja vu and precognition and remote viewing. 
we are able to go back to the past and forward into the future, not physically and not in any way where we could really alter anything. It's, it's more of a perception. Um, but when you physically go back, you're changing something. Your, right. your right. active observation is changing something. So remote viewing gets really tricky because are you physically somehow, even though your body's not doing the remote, you know, not going somewhere, you're sending your consciousness. Now, is your consciousness enough to be considered an observer? So that brings that whole idea of the quantum observer effect into play. And could we mess up the past and future just by doing that? I don't know. Uh, although some people have described remote viewing as uh, some refer to the Akashic Record and you're simply maybe pull, like it's pulling a video off a, sh a library shelf and, right. and, and, and reviewing something that's already taken place. I like that idea because I feel like remote viewing is people tapping into what Larry and I call the grid, the grid of information, the zero point field, the Akashic records, there's so many different names that it's gone by. Right. This field of information that contains past, present, and future all embedded in it. And we're looking, like you said, it's like going through the old card catalog in a library or you're watching a, a video. So in that sense, and I think that people who are psychic, and ha uh, when you have an ESP experience, people who um, are, have precognitive visions or dreams, even deja vu, I think that these are different ways that we are tapping into this field or into this grid and just getting information out of it, but not changing anything. Marie Jones is the author, the co-author of this book is From the Future, A Journey Through Portals, Relativity, Wormholes, and Other Adventures in Time Travel. We'll open up the phone lines and uh, make uh, uh, those available for those who want to get in on the discussion, and we'll roll out the phone numbers here in just a moment. Um, but there's another uh, idea, uh, and I think Einstein and some of his colleagues were, were touching on this. You mentioned uh, wormholes and, and, uh, and black holes and how they may be a, a shortcut. Uh, so that would, in, a, in effect, um, uh, do away with the need to uh, at obtain um, uh, light speed. If you can take basically a shortcut from this end of the galaxy to the other uh, by whipping through a, a, a wormhole or, or some, something like that. Uh, so in effect, maybe the entire universe is a time machine, Marie. It could be. You know, wormholes are theoretical. I mean, we know that there are black holes, but... The idea of a wormhole is that you have a black hole at one end, you have sort of a, a tube, it's you know, an invisible tube through time space that connects to a white hole, which is really just a black hole at another end. And it could be another end of our universe, it could be another end in a parallel universe, and there can actually be what are called time wormholes, which connect, say, the past to the present, the present to the future, the future to the past. It's all theoretical, but the idea is that if these exist, and if we can find a way to... Uh, get around some of the problems such as keeping the, the, the throat of the wormhole open so it doesn't turn you into a piece of spaghetti with that, that gravitational pull. And, uh, you know, the idea of sending a, a person through a wormhole is still science fiction. But again, the idea is, well, what if something can go through, even a particle? Then we know theoretically it might be extrapolated to something bigger later on down the line. But, you know, wormholes are like the multiverse. They're sort of um, can't, uh, ways around <laughs> the paradoxes and the problems. So until we can prove, maybe at the Large Hadron Collider, that uh, there are such things as wormholes, you know, it, it remains theoretical. Well... 
Uh, getting back to Professor Mallet for a moment, and, and his, um, my understanding is incredibly rudimentary, but uh, his idea is that if you could stir the time-space fabric, mm-hmm. uh, much the same as you would you would stir uh, coffee with a stir stick, right? And you create that little, you know, that little what would you call that, a little whirlpool in there, right? And then if you were to drop something into that whirlpool, that in effect is what you want to create with a time machine. Right. And he's saying that the amount of energy that would be required, you know, to open up a space large enough for a human to fit in would be, I mean, beyond, beyond, beyond our, our ability. It would require the power of several suns, probably. But he theorizes that he could at least send a bits of information through a time right. machine, right. and it could act as an early warning device. So let's say tomorrow there's an earthquake, but mm-hmm. we, could, we could let people know two years, uh, you know, back that there's an earthquake coming and they could prepare. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, sending information is sending something on the particulate level. It's not, you're not sending anything physical through. And I know, you know, he had his idea of looped time and uh, similar to, did you see the movie Contact? Carl Sagan yes. wrote the novel. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, when she's in the pod and it drops down into that swirling vortex that's created by right. those giant circular loops like an egg beater wormhole so it's really similar to that concept and that wormhole will literally take you wherever you want to go in the universe um but yeah i mean it's it's something that i think probably in our lifetimes we will i'm hoping for mr mallet's sake we will be able to find a way to send a bit of information and it or bit of information or a particle um but, wow, I mean, the technology that we would need, you have to move, in order for mass to move through a, a wormhole like that, I mean, you would need some kind of infinite force behind it. And so many people, I know Frank Tipler had this idea of cylinders that were infinite in size that that were spinning so quickly that it, same same idea, that it created a vortex. And But everything always ends up with infinite in size because that's how much energy you would need to move something like that through. We just don't have any kind of technology like that. Now, Michio Kaku thinks there are other civilizations out there that might. Right. <laughs> Alien civilizations far, far from the future. Um, but we humans don't, so... Well, that, that's interesting because uh, that's one of the theories behind the UFO uh, phenomena is that they are they're time travelers. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was really shocked, too, to find out that there was a time travel link even to um, the Roswell story, that there was a, a general who uh, was very high up who claimed that he had access to to all of the information, the crash wreckage and the aliens themselves, and that they were not only time travelers, interdimensional time travelers, but that they were us from the future. Whoa. Uh, We have no proof of that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, but that, um, I mean, that's the big question. If time travel is possible, people say, well, why aren't there a bunch of time travelers walking around now saying, hey, I'm from the future? Exactly. Well, there are some. <laughs> Do we believe them? You know, and that's Stephen Hawking. I mean, that was his big uh, uh, idea that, well, hey, come on, if if they're here, where are they? Well, uh, except- and nobody could really ever counter that except to say that, uh, you know, maybe they just did a drive-by or they, they didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to be observed. They could be here. We don't know it. Maybe we can't see them if they're interdimensional. But, yeah, that was his big question. Well, you... Some- 
you can't travel. Um, you couldn't travel back any further uh, than when the time machine is created and then turned on, right? Right, so exactly. <laughs> if I if I create a time machine tomorrow, then in the future, the farthest people can ever travel back in time would be to August sixth, two thousand and twelve. Right, exactly, exactly. So if they want to go to August fifth, they're you know SOL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was nothing going on today. <laughs> so, many, so many limitations and blocks, and why don't we just forget it and focus on something else? But no, I mean you know this is one of the the quests of humanity to, to master time and we're not going to give up till we do it unless we already have and it's sitting in a uh, a warehouse somewhere a government warehouse locked up in a box we'll uh, discuss the possibility that maybe we already have devised a time machine uh, back with more of my conversation with marie jones this book is from the future a journey through portals relativity wormholes and other adventures in time travel join the adventure The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Marie Jones is with us. This book is from the future, uh, co-written by her partner, Larry Flaxman. And um, how many books is this for you now, Marie? For me, it's ten. Ten. Wow. Five with there. This is our fifth book together. 2013, The End of Days or a New Beginning, uh, Super Volcano, the catastrophic event that changed the course of human history. You wrote that one with your dad, right? I did, yeah. 11-11, The Time Prompt Phenomenon, The Trinity Secret, uh, The Deja Vu Enigma. Well, The Deja Vu Enigma, that uh, you, we sort of touched on that earlier, how Deja Vu may in fact be sort of uh, time travel, although, you know, the, the skeptics, God bless the skeptics and the debunkers, they, they love to, to keep us pinned to the ground. They have they these... Do. Wonderful romantic, uh, romantic uh, uh, explanations for things. Well, déjà vu is because one optical nerve is shorter than the other. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, people are lying about déjà vu. <laughs> right. <laughs> but how is déjà vu a, 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 a time travel experience? Do you think? Well, it's more of a possible multiverse or parallel universe experience because the idea is, and yet here I'll explain how it's related to time travel. When people have deja vu, most of the time the sensation that you get is that you exist in two places at once where you're doing the same thing, talking to the same person, saying the same words. You know what words are going to come out of their mouth next. It's like you're having a dual experience or a memory of something that is happening as it happens, which, of course, is impossible. How can you have a memory of something that's happening as it happens? But that's what it is. Where the idea of time and time travel comes into play is that a lot of people who have deja vu also have what we call add-on experiences. So, for example, some people may have deja vu when they're in a certain location and they get a sense that they've been there before. They may get a flashback to a past, uh, you know, past life or, or just a, a vision or a flashback of that location with them in it, but it's a thousand years earlier. Other people may have a deja vu event and also experience a precognitive uh, vision or notion that may come true later. We talked to some people who, uh, actually, this is interesting, who had a dream of something and then two, three weeks later had deja vu. And right at that time, what they dreamt about happened. And in this one particular case, it was a car accident. The person was actually able to avoid getting killed 
because they had not only had a precognitive dream, but the deja vu sort of served as a wake-up reminder. So deja vu is such a fascinating phenomenon because it's linked to so many other things. You know, the, the skeptics have tried to explain it away as a memory glitch, a brain glitch, a one-eye perception before the other, and, and none of those have really worked. There's an awful lot of real serious scientific research going on into deja vu because there is the idea that it is some kind of perception of another uh, level of reality. So it may not involve, involve any kind of time, but some people do report that it does. I've never had a past life deja vu. Uh, mine are always just feeling like I'm in two places at once and everything is happening at the same time. But um, Back in the, uh, I think it was the 60s, there was a, a book that came out. It's since recent, fairly recently been translated, but it was... Um, uh, there was a, um, this eccentric priest, and he claimed that the, the Vatican had a time machine. I think his name was Father Ernetti or something. And yeah. it, was, it was called the chronovisor. Right, yes. We have a little thing about it in the book. Yeah, and, and let me see if I can find it, because it's very little information on that, obviously. <laughs> yes, but this, yeah, Father Ernetti was, now, if I'm remembering correctly, Father Ernetti uh, claimed that he had devised this, this, uh, this chronovisor device, and he could look, you know, he could, he could look back into the depths of time. Right, um, right. But, um... Yeah. Who, uh, nobody ever saw it. You know, that's the problem. We've had people who claim that they were part of uh, DARPA, you know, yes. There are people that claim that they were part of these experiments that DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, for those mm -hmm. who don't know what DARPA stands for. Well, there are a number of people that are out there doing interviews and, and events and YouTube videos claiming that they were part of a project uh, involving time travel. Uh, Andrew Bishago. Yeah. Um, project Andy Pegasus. Burns. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a number of different experiments that may have been done at different times. One of them involves something called the Montauk chair. Yes. And this was done at Montauk, which many people who have looked into the Philadelphia experiment, uh, these, you know, what we call time travel conspiracies, that this uh, Montauk was uh, in Camp Hero, New York, a location where supposed top secret research was done involving manipulation of the electromagnetic field. But there are also people who claim that they were doing time travel experimentation involving this type of chair that you could sit in and it would enter a wormhole and you would go into the future, you'd go into the past. You, uh, these people were told to gather information or to observe things. I know Andy Perro claimed that he went back to uh, World War II. So there are several gentlemen that we write about, uh, Dr. Dan Burrish, who claimed he worked for the Majestic Program, Area 51, where they had Project Looking Glass. All right, we'll, um, we're breaking up a little bit there, but we'll listen, we'll, um, we'll take a time out, do some business, come back and continue to discuss time travel. And uh, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind uh, just talking about Andrew Bishago and Project Pegasus just for a moment. I had an opportunity to sit and talk with him at length, so we can uh, discuss that as well. Marie Jones, this book is from the future. Welcome back. This book is from the future. That's the latest book from Marie Jones and her partner Larry Flaxman. A journey through portals, relativity, wormholes, and other adventures in time travel. And uh, we were mentioning uh, DARPA and, and uh, some of these other uh, uh, programs that allegedly are involved in time travel experiments. Mm -hmm. And um, the name Andrew Bishago came up and, and Project Pegasus. And I, I, um, 
I've had Andrew on the on the, on the show a couple of times, and I, I met with him and uh, and spoke to him at length for my TV show when he was living up in uh, the state of Washington, uh, in, in Vancouver, Washington. Anyway, seems like a very uh, intelligent. He's a very likable guy, um, and I came away, you know, thinking he's either a great actor uh, because he delivers, you know, this scenario with such sincerity and believability. Or right. he's delusional, uh, <laughs> or I don't know. He's a he's a, a highly trained uh, d- disinformation agent. I don't know what to make of, of the story, except that it's so detailed and so. That's, oh, that's it. The yeah. detail is amazing, and it's repeated. And this is the problem that I have, and, and I don't. I, I would never ever claim to know the truth because I wasn't there, but. I have a real problem with anybody who can remember that much detail because I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Right. Exactly. And, I, and I've had this discussion with a number of people that some of these gentlemen will tell the same story. And I'm not saying story that it's fictional. I'm just saying what happened, what they believe happened uh, with such detail that never changes. And we're talking names, dates, what people were wearing, locations, and it never changes, and it's very precise. And yet, most of us, honest, to, you know, we can't remember what we did yesterday, and we certainly can't remember what other people were wearing. Or, and th- these things happened quite a while ago. So that's one of the things that always comes up when we hear when we talk about the Chrononaut stories. You know, are they savants? Um, are they disinformation specialists that have photographic memories? Or did this happen to them? And it's so ingrained in their being because it was just so amazing that they remember every detail. Maybe when something like that happens to you, you literally, you know, you're like a sponge. But that's the same problem. I'm so glad you said the word details because that was the problem that I had. How, how do they remember this so well? Uh, it's it's amazing. And, and, you know, but then it sort of crosses the line because the whole idea that Barack Obama was one of the chrononauts, a lot of people then put <laughs> was announced. So it's like maybe there, this really was happening. Maybe DARPA really did have some research going into what they called quantum tunneling and time warp fields and, and wormholes because certainly these theories have been around for a long time. And we all know that there's research going on that we're not made privy to. So maybe there's something to it. But then you hear something like, you know, Barack Obama went to Mars. And it just, to me, blows all credibility. Well, um, but- that sounds like someone who is setting up the straw man arguments. So you've got maybe someone who's out there talking about legitimate time travel experiments. And so maybe someone from naval intelligence who, who wants to discredit that person creates the straw man. And says, "Oh, look at this person over here. He's making such ridiculous arguments in favor right. of time travel." How can they must it be true. Yeah, they're yeah, all absolutely crazy. Absolutely right. And you just have no idea what to believe. And you know, and these these are people who are genuine and likable. But again, it's that attention to detail that just blows my mind because I, you know, doing research for these books, I like to think that I can remember a lot of things. I don't remember half of what's in this book without having to go back and look through it let alone be able to recite something that happened to me what back in the 70s uh, forget it i couldn't do it but do you think that that uh, a darpa or whomever is actually experimenting with i don't know time dilation or or something i mean you got to figure Probably. <laughs> i'm sure they are I, but here's you know 
like I said, there's research going on out at CERN at the at the collider with with particles and black holes and trying to find parallel universes. But here's a problem that I have: if DARPA or the Department of Defense or anybody else is doing this stuff, I would tend to think that they would be engaging, and who knows, maybe they are, the most brilliant theoretical physicists out there. Now, when you have guys like Brian Greene and, and Michio Kaku and Stephen Hawking and, and Lisa Randall, all these brilliant physicists who are still struggling with the theory of time travel. I, I would kind of think that they might be in the loop if there really was time travel research going on. One would but think. If saying it's impossible at this point, then I would question their education. I don't know. I see a little bit of a disconnect there between the scientists that are, that are out there talking about time travel and what the government or military, quote unquote, them might be doing. Um, but who knows? I, I um, recently um, met with two members of the Roadrunners International. This is a, a group um, made up primarily of former military, former CIA, and former defense contractors who have some connection to Area 51 or Groom Lake or whatever Hi. they're calling it these days. And some of these people worked on the U-2 spy plane. And anyway, these two gentlemen would, could not confirm that they worked in Area 51, <laughs> but they hinted very strongly that they did. And uh, I was sort of asking them about the whole, you know, uh, uh, what is Area 51 being used for? Are they back engineering UFO technology? Are they doing alien autopsies and so forth? And they said, what's going on inside Area 51 is far more interesting than that. And I, my jaw hit the floor. I said, what could possibly... What could be more interesting than yes, that? Yes, <laughs> they, they were saying that the stuff that's going on inside Area 51, is, first of all, they assured me it's, it's all man-made. It has nothing to do with, uh, you know, extraterrestrials. He said, right. but, but the, the technology there is 50 years beyond what you can even imagine. It's, it, and that's the security is so tight. They said, if this stuff were to be made known to the public, we wouldn't be able to cope with it. We, we, we wouldn't be able to fathom oh, what's going yeah, and on. Oh, you know, there. yeah, I'm thinking di- uh, interdimensional, uh, parallel universes, time travel. I mean, those are the mind-blowing things. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard. And I mean... It's not hard. I mean, it's one thing to accept that they're aliens because I think we've been bombarded with pop culture and this sort of prepared us for that. Um, But yeah, if somebody were to say to me, hey, guess what? At Area 51, they've proven that there are 16,000 parallel universes and you exist in eight of them. We saw you. You That might blow my mind a little. Yeah. And and they went on to explain that it was the it was the U.S. military that created the whole UFO uh, a buzz as a cover story because people would uh, would be so sort of you know hypnotized and preoccupied wow. with that their their attention would be diverted to what's really going on there which as they say is even far more mind blowing which that's gonna that's gonna break a whole lot of hearts though for people <laughs> that really want there to be aliens and UFOs we'd be like ah oh, you're kidding all you have out there are parallel universes gee thanks. <laughs> The great I disappointment. Think, absolutely. I mean, time travel, if we're, if the public is interested in it, you got to know that the people with the power and the, the brains are way ahead of us. I can't even imagine what they might be doing that's 50 years ahead of, of anything imaginable. No. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it boggles the mind. Jean is in Etobicoke. Hello, Jean. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Oh, yes. Hello. Um, I love your show, by the way. Thank you. And, uh, yes, uh, there was a movie that I really enjoyed. It was called Somewhere in Time. Oh, a classic. (laughs) 
Is that the one with that's the one with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he went back in time, and uh, what brought him back to present day? He had a coin in his pocket that was from the future, and that um, apparently that brought him back from the past to the future. It was sort of a, a marker or, or a, a trigger. Right, right. Well, but it's hey, uh, certainly a very romantic portrayal. Would he be lying on the bed trying to hypnotize himself to go back? You're not really sure if his whole body leaves. I, I, it sounds ridiculous, but... That's the magic of movies is that, that they can they can tell you these wonderful stories that might be based on a little bit of science and theory. Uh, but, you know, that's the, the wonderful thing about fiction and, and films is that they can take the ideas of real science and just really go to town with them. And uh, But, you know, it's all based on things that scientists at the time were actually thinking about and talking about. And actually, hypnosis is one form of mental time travel that, that is taken seriously as a way to send the brain, the memory and consciousness into another time. Uh, yes, and the whole idea of uh, regression uh, is very controversial, and right. whether you can like regression, or uh-huh. whether you can recover repressed memories and so forth. Right. Uh, because uh, I mean, it's an interesting concept whether the past is actually, sort of an objective thing. I mean, is there just one past? Everyone perceives the right. past very differently. And so which right. past are you going back to? Exactly. Uh, the, the world does seem uh, to remain transfixed with the whole idea. We had Somewhere in Time, which is about 1980, I think that came out. And then I think probably most recently was uh, The Time Traveler's Wife, which came out a couple of years ago, which is actually There's, a pretty good movie. I, it was. There's one coming out with Bruce Willis called Looper. Um, I think that's coming out in a month or, or maybe even less. And uh, what's his name? Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and, who plays a younger version of Bruce Willis. There have been so many time travel movies and books and TV shows it, Obviously, it's an obsession and a fascination that is not going to go away until we figure it out, if we ever do. Paradoxes aside, Marie, if you could travel to the past, where where would you go? When would you go? I would go back to my early childhood. That's it. Most people say, oh, high school or college. Oh, hell no. <laughs> I would go back to my early childhood, or I would go back to when my son was younger so I could relive his his years <laughs> but i don't think i would really want to go back I, i'm happy with the way it is and i don't want to mess anything up i would be afraid <laughs> that's true yeah the paradoxes yeah it's a minefield for sure and the future would you be interested in traveling to the future no no i want it to be a surprise unless it was way in the future where it wasn't going to involve me anyway but uh, no i think i want my future to be see my fear would be is that if i knew something was going to happen i would either make it happen when maybe it shouldn't have, or not make it happen when it should have. So I'd rather not know. Good answers, because, you know, I think that the, I think the 
the the danger you know wanting to travel to the future preoccupying yourself with the past uh, you know right. people that are that are that are mired in nostalgia is that they're 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 missing out on the ever present now right absolutely and aren't we humans like that we live half our lives worrying about the past half our lives worrying about the future we're never in the present moment where we should be exactly and so uh, but let's look ahead to the future what are you working on Marie and what's up next. Oh, my gosh. Well, Larry and I just pitched a couple of ideas to our publisher, so we don't really know what we're doing next with that, but uh, a lot of promotion for this book, speaking at some big events coming up, and uh, it's all on our website, which is paraexplorers.com. Always keeping busy. What, do you, what else do you do at Para Explorers? Uh, that's just our website for we, we do books. We've written a couple of screenplays together. We're thinking about doing a fictional series based on some of the research in our books. We have our own radio show now uh, called Parafringe Radio on every other Tuesday. And we have, excuse me, ebooks that we're doing. So that's just sort of the dumping ground for everything that Larry and I do together. I have my own website, which is mariedjones.com. Um, but everything that Larry and I have together can be seen at Para Explorers. Marie, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure as well. Thank you so much. All right. Good night. Marie Jones, this book is from the future. And um, I've got a website I can plug as well, uh, richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. And that's where you'll find all the information about upcoming shows, past shows, uh, there's even a, um, a classified document uh, uh, a page where you can look up uh, declassified. Oh, it's all good stuff. Check it out, richardserrett.com. Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You know, we've just passed the 50th anniversary of the death of Marilyn Monroe. Can you believe it? 50 years ago. Um, discovered... Well, depending on the timeline, uh, either in very early in the morning, uh, say around 3 a.m. on August the 5th, 1962, she was discovered in her bed dead of an apparent overdose, acute barbiturate uh, poisoning uh, by her housekeeper Eunice uh, Murray and her psychiatrist, I believe, at the time. Um, although, as we'll discover over the next hour, there are a lot of sort of uh, mysterious inconsistencies, uh, keeping in mind that um, some suggest she may have been murdered. Uh, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a suicide. She was, in fact, murdered. That's one theory. The other theory that we're actually going to um, delve into right now is that Marilyn Monroe was tricked into a, uh, faking another suicide attempt. She was notorious for this, to get attention, poor thing. Uh, but this time she was tricked into uh, committing suicide, giving the means to do so, and then she was allowed to die, even as she was crying out for help. Pretty twisted, evil plot. Um, but wait till you hear who my next guest thinks was really at the center of that plot, who was orchestrating that plot. My uh, guest is a retired psychologist, a retired L.A. clinical psychologist, and uh, he is the author of Marilyn Monroe, Murder by Consent, A Psychologist's Journey with Death. Dr. Jack Haddam, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. 
and I had the great pleasure of visiting you in your home. Met your lovely wife as well when we uh, traveled out to uh, to San Clemente, uh, California, to um, to shoot an episode for the uh, Conspiracy TV show. Yes, you did, and I appreciated your coming. Well, um, where do we begin? Let's let's begin with the um, the. Uh, let me begin with your interest in Marilyn Monroe. You are a, a retired okay. clinical psychologist, but you right. used to work for the suicide hotline in Los Angeles, did no, you not? The suicide Prevention Suicide Center. Prevention, okay. Yeah, and the Suicide Prevention Center opened its doors about a week after Marilyn uh, died. And we were asked by the then county coroner to investigate her death. Uh, he didn't want to deal with any of this. In fact, uh, hired a very inexperienced coroner to do the inquest, uh, Yamaguchi, and uh, he watched while he did the uh, autopsy, and then he turned the whole thing over to us in 1962. And I happened to be have joined that agency at that time. And and so and you were were you a Marilyn Monroe fan? Yes, I loved Marilyn Monroe. I, I fell in love with her from the asphalt jungle. Who, uh, she was only a couple of years older than me, but I thought she was spectacular. And, and what was it about her death that, uh, that troubled you and led you to believe it wasn't uh, acute barbiturate poisoning or, uh, attempted, or a, a suicide or an accidental overdose? Well, over, the 40, uh, over 40 years... I started reading other um, authors about her, and at the time I started to write the book, I was just, you know, uh, beginning to believe there was something very phony about this whole thing. I had lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis when she was uh, murdered, and uh, I I began to believe that there was there was a lot of cover-up that we found out later. Uh, there was there was so much of uh, what was going on that was not talked about or even found out about during that period of time. And as I was writing the book, the FBI files became available, indicating that they were listening in as she was being murdered, as well as the CIA, as well as a private investigator. So there were three different groups, all of whom knew each other, uh, listening in as she ended her life. Um, I wonder if we could maybe revisit the, the timeline leading up to the discovery of her body at her, in her bed in her Brentwood home on uh, Fifth Helena Ave. Um, now, there's some controversy as to who she was on the phone with. She was found with a phone in her hand, was she not? Yeah, she was speaking to uh, Joe DiMaggio Jr. at uh, the uh, at the, uh, Pendleton, Camp Pendleton, which is adjoining San Clemente, as it turns out. But he apparently told Joe DiMaggio, his father, what she had said. And uh, he, Joe DiMaggio in the FBI files said, I'm going to kill Robert Kennedy as soon as he's out of office. Ah, okay. So we're going to we'll just jump right in, and we're going to name yeah, we're it was jump right in, Robert yes. Kennedy. Uh, okay, well, we'll we'll sort of work our way back to, to Bobby and, and what 
he had okay. uh, how he was involved. But so so when they found Marilyn, when she was yeah. discovered by her psychiatrist and I believe her housekeeper, she had this phone in her hand. Yes. And and this was the last call she made to her, I guess, her former stepson, Joe DiMaggio Jr. Well, actually, she was calling Peter Lawford. She had spoken to DiMaggio's son earlier. She knew what was going on, obviously. The, the Kennedy, Robert Kennedy had made believe that he was up in San Francisco. But he and Peter Lawford came during that afternoon and had a, a, a row with Marilyn, probably because he had he said that he wasn't going to marry her after telling her repeatedly that he was going to marry her. And she threatened to go to the newspapers. And uh, he kept, I think he was after her red diary, where she recorded everything she had ever learned from both Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. The red diary, by the way, disappeared on the day of her death and showed up five years later in the hands of Sidney Skolsky, a Hollywood uh, reporter who never revealed the data in the, in the Red Diary. We should just, uh, uh, let me just back up uh, and remind listeners, Dr. Jack Haddam is with us, retired clinical psychologist, psychologist from Los Angeles and the author of Marilyn Monroe, Murder by Consent, A Psychologist's Journey uh, with Death. So first, we, let's just back up and establish Marilyn Monroe, um, I think you know many of us have heard the rumors that she had a fling with the president, John F. Oh, yeah. Kennedy. Now, this fling, some have said it was a it was a one night stand. Oh no! Uh, no but no. you know differently. What, what what can you tell us about her affair? Oh, well, first of all, the with FBI the president. Files, FBI files clearly indicate that Jack had more than a one day fling. In fact, he visited Los Angeles and had a. Uh, what you might call an orgy, according to the FBI files, not only with Marilyn, but with some other women. And the FBI files also report that she had these lesbian affairs, which a new book has just come out with. But that was part of her personality disorder, which I wrote about in my book. She didn't believe sex was anything more than going to the bathroom, and it didn't make any difference whether it was a man or a woman. And, and so her, her affair with, with John F. Kennedy, uh, yeah. at this point the, the FBI were, 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 were still surveilling her and... and, and um, oh, for a long time before that. And, and was it because of her, her first marriage with Arthur Miller, who, yes. who was considered a communist? Is that By the reason? By the way, that's not, that was her third marriage. Her third marriage, I'm sorry. Yeah, with Arthur Miller, Miller, who they considered a communist, yes. And that's when they started to, to uh, tap her phones and, and keep an so eye on What's so extraordinary is that the real communists were her psychiatrist and her housekeeper. Eunice Murray and Ralph Green- Greenson, Greenson, who I knew personally. You knew Ralph? Yes. He was a very charming man, by the way. Okay, so back to Jack Kennedy. Um, so the FBI, these files, incidentally, they've been declassified. How did you, how did you come to see these files? Um, an Australian newspaper declassified them, and then I got a hold of them myself. And, there and, were 80 pages of information, but I only used three pages of them in my book, the pages directly connected to her last day of life. And at what point did... John F. Kennedy tell Marilyn that's it, we're through. Was it uh, the day... Oh, it was right after she sang happy birthday to him. 
that was uh, Jackie Kennedy said, this is enough, Jack. If you don't get rid of that woman, I'm going to divorce you. And that's when Jack Kennedy cut off contact with her, and so did Robert. At what point did Robert have his uh, dalliance with, with Marilyn? Give us a time well, frame. It was in early, it was in 61 and 62. So and Jack and Robert were having... Sinatra's ha- Ranch for orgies, and they went to Mexico, according to the FBI. Mm-hmm. You know, now, for many... Uh, you have to understand something. Yes. The Cuban Missile Crisis in the United States was a very scary period of time. And I have a letter sent to Jack Kennedy by the uh, chief of operations of the CIA, who told him directly that Marilyn was a threat to the country. Because? Well, she knew probably that there were 12 CIA teams that had been flown into Cuba in in the jungles that were operating against Castro at the time. And you, and it's believed then that Jack would have told Marilyn all this during pillow talk and she would have yes, written it all possibly. down? possibly, yes. Yes, he was not very discreet, I think. Well, some, uh, some anyway, of... Anyway, that's the supposition, because right. why did they, did her diary disappear? And how, I mean, how, do we, how did we come to know about this red diary if it disappeared? Had, had, had people known about her diary? Was it well known no, that she kept a diary? Was, it came up in the uh, various investigations. Uh, and, and I think the FBI mentioned that Jack, uh, John, uh, Robert Kennedy was trying to get it from her. Okay. The other thing is there are other authors who have written about this. And uh, right now, there's like five other books on her murder. I don't know what they're saying, but they followed mine. And uh, there's going to be a movie next year uh, called Marilyn Monroe Murder at Fifth Alberta Drive, which is going to reveal even more information because I'm in that movie and I listen to the private detective who was listening in on her, her uh, life at that time. And he has 12 hours of tape. My words. Oh, Doc- what happened there? Dr. Jack Haddam is uh, w- with us, the author of Marilyn Monroe, Murder by Consent, A Psychologist's Journey with Death. More in a moment. Stay with us. One of the most famous stars in Hollywood history is dead at 36. Marilyn Monroe was found dead in bed under circumstances that were in tragic contrast to her glamorous career as a comic talent. On the surface, she seemed to have such a zest for life. Her international appeal took her from command appearances to the other side of the world and entertainment for Korean GIs. The star led a far-from-normal childhood and had 12 sets of foster parents, leading her to say in her last interview that she was never used to being happy, so it wasn't something she ever took for granted. She never let her personal feelings interfere with her job, and she was the idol of the GIs, the animation of foxhole dreams. And uh, welcome back. Uh, Dr. Jack Haddam is with us. The book is Marilyn Monroe, Murder by Consent, or uh, um, a, a Psychologist's Journey Through Death. And uh, Jack, uh, the, uh, getting back to the timeline here for a moment, yeah. it's, it's, has it been, to your satisfaction, sort of nailed down the, 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 the time of death, or is that important? Because I've heard 3 a.m., I've heard yeah. uh, 9 p.m., 
Uh, Eunice Murray has changed changed her story a number of times, and then she right. left the country and wouldn't talk about it anymore. Yeah, when did she die? Uh, nobody knows exactly. The fact is that she wasn't dead initially when they found her. She was taken off in an ambulance to the hospital and died in the ambulance. And then they took her home and put her back in bed. So even the, the position of the body was not the original position. Which is interesting because in the coroner's report, yeah. uh, Marilyn, there was bruising on her body. Uh, there was what they call lividity uh, on her back and buttocks, which means that uh, she probably died on her back. Yeah. Yet she was found face down in her bed. Yes. And she was naked originally. The other interesting uh, thing is... She to sleep naked anyway. When, when the police arrived, they reported that Eunice Murray, the housekeeper, was washing her sheets. Yes, I know. It's ridiculous. I, I, the first report, I think, was at 1245. And then the police weren't called until 425. Uh, and nobody explained that either. The, the fact is there was a cover-up by the police at the highest level also. And uh, there was cover-up by all the government agencies as well. Robert Kennedy and, and uh, Peter Lawford visited her on that day in the afternoon. Only Robert Kennedy tried to keep it a secret. Unfortunately, he was in a car that got a ticket. And so the, it was revealed that he was in Los Angeles when he claimed to be in San Francisco. And again, he, so he was having an affair with Marilyn uh, around the same time that his brother Jack was? Earlier, in fact, yes. But, but at some point they were both having an affair with her? Yes. His was more serious, and she, he spent more time with her than Jack did. You know, that it just, it's such... For people who admire Robert Kennedy, and I am, I, I am one, um, it's, it's hard to fathom such a, a man who, who seemed to have such morals... Uh, that yeah. he would do something like that. Yeah. I'll read you something from the uh, FBI files. It said, Robert Kennedy was deeply involved emotionally with Marilyn Monroe and had repeatedly promised to, to divorce his wife to marry Marilyn. Eventually, Marilyn realized that Bobby had no intention of marrying her, and about this time, 20th Century Fox Studio had decided to cancel her contract. Okay, so... That's in the FBI files that I've just read. All right. So now that she's been dumped by Bobby and she's yeah. been let go by 20th Century Fox... Yeah, she was really annoyed. <laughs> I guess, and she was she was convinced... Now we're getting into the crux of the uh, this plot. She's yeah. then convinced by Bobby and Peter Lawford that if she... If she attempts a suicide again, and she's done this yes. before, yes, she'll win the sympathy, she'll gain sympathy, and maybe get a job back at 20th Century? Right. Um, Peter Lawford and Bobby convinced her that if she made believe she was committing suicide, that 20th, Fox, 20th Century Fox would take her back, and that Bobby and Peter Lawford would do everything they could to get her contract back. Now, what... Something I didn't know at the time, and I was told recently when I was talking about my book, is that Dean Martin refused to continue the movie she was supposed to play in 
unless she was given their contract back. Oh, interesting. Something I didn't know and something she didn't know either. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's good to know as a, as a, as a huge fan of Dean Martin that he yeah. would do something like that. Yeah. So um, let's continue on with this plot. So Bobby and Peter convince Marilyn that, it, that if she attempts suicide or fakes an attempt at suicide, yeah, she'll win. So, so what was the idea, that she would take just enough? Yes, uh, and that she was told that she would be woken up. Unfortunately, she got double the usual dose. She had trouble sleeping, so she took sleeping pills from her regular physician and from Dr. Greenson. And Eunice Murray gave her the pills. Interestingly enough, uh, there was no water found at her bedside, which is one of the confusing things for the first officer on the scene who thought there was something wrong with the whole situation. No glass of water to wash the pills down. Right, exactly. And apparently Marilyn uh, had, you know, she had this aversion to taking pills because she was always gagging even if she took lots of water. Yes, right. So it would, make, yeah, it would be curious that there would be no yeah. glass of water there. Right. So then what, what is, what, what's the takeaway from that? that, that she was maybe delivered, it was delivered by enema or suppository? No, I think that she actually took the pills because she believed in Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford was somebody she trusted. She didn't trust Bobby, but she treated Peter Lawford. She trusted Peter Lawford, who in effect was kind of her pimp in terms of Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. And this is Bobby and Jack's brother-in-law, Peter, who married exactly. their, their sister. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and in fact, he, she called him just before she died, trying to reach him, and he qu- claimed that she couldn't reach him because of his phone was somehow not working. But right after that, Robert Kennedy called him and said, is she dead yet? according to the FBI files. So they had tapped his phone as well? Yes. Where, where would he have been calling from where they would have been able to tap his phone? Know. I don't know. We don't know. I have no idea. I'll tell you something. You have no idea how the federal government was involved in Marilyn's life from, from long periods of time. Do the, the actual tapes of the, the phone taps, do those still exist somewhere? Oh, yes. In fact, I listened in on the private detective's discussion of the 12 hours of tape that he had uh, about six months ago. And he was describing that he knew exactly who killed her and how she was killed. And so the, these, these tapes would contain Marilyn's phone conversations? They would, oh, yes. Bobby's voice would be on those tapes at some point? Yes. Peter Lawford's voice? Yes. Only he's not, uh, he, he's being very cautious with regard to that. But the FBI files has been, have been revealed. They're for everybody to see. And I put the important files in the back of my book. But isn't there some, um, some I don't know, disagreement as to the, the providence of the, these FBI documents, whether or not they are 100% authentic? I, I never heard that. Okay. So you're convinced that they are? They're, they're redacted. You, I, in my book, parts of them are blocked out. Sure, sure. You know, especially with names. Although they had no problem putting in 
Robert Kennedy, Peter Lawford, Joe DiMaggio Jr., and Joe DiMaggio. Well, that's interesting, isn't it, that they would not have redacted or crossed out their names. And I'm wondering no. whether there might be a motive here for the FBI to do this. Keep, oh, sure. uh, because Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, absolutely hated Bobby Kennedy. Absolutely. So do you think it's possible that J. Edgar Hoover wanted to, to, to frame Bobby? Of course. I, I think it's more than possible. I think it's very likely that he held on to this to control Bobby and Jack. But but what I'm suggesting is that that he, J. Edgar Hoover, that is, ordered that Bobby's name be included in this plot, maybe, maybe even if he wasn't involved. Oh, I is that a possibility? That's true. No? It's, no. If you read these, uh, it, it, it just follows in order. And, and not only is the FBI involved, but the CIA and this private investigator who listened in also. You know, by the way, all three of these uh, agencies knew about each other. They knew that they were uh, taping her. Was Marilyn aware that she was being surveilled? Oh, no. She wasn't aware. No. Now, one author claimed that Dr. Greenson and Eunice Murray were part of a communist cell and that Robert Kennedy could, as attorney general, knew this as well and could control their behavior so that they became part of the plot. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, my understanding is that um, Eunice Murray had been fired that very day by right. by uh, Marilyn Monroe. Is that true? Yeah, she was going to be fired. She hadn't been fired yet. So was Dr. Greenson going to be fired. And why was that? Do we know? Well, I, I have information from other sources that he was sleeping with her. Murray was sleeping with Greenson. No, not Murray. Greenson was sleeping with Marilyn. Ah, okay. Interesting. And he moved her into that house and did everything that was um, the kind of thing that no psychoanalyst ever does. He shared his life with her. He had her over to his house. He apparently slept with her, for, according to sources, of my personal sources. In fact, he was held up at the Psychoanalytic Society as the example of what not to do if you're a psychiatrist. So Eunice Murray and, and Greenson obviously were in on this plot. Yes, absolutely. You notice that Greenson didn't even show up when Murray told him that she was dead. At 12.45, Murray apparently called him and said that she was dead. And he didn't show up till four, till three something. Well, this is interesting uh, because there's also um, Marilyn Monroe's uh, agent, um, Arthur Jacobs, was apparently attending a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, not too far from Brentwood, I think. No. Uh, around 10.30, he received a call uh, from, I believe it was Marilyn's lawyer, Oh. saying that he, that she was dead. This is at 10:30. At and 10:30. Ja and Jacobs leaves and Jacobs yeah. leaves the Hollywood Bowl uh with his wife and he was also there with director Mervyn Leroy and his wife. Uh again after being informed by Mickey Rudin who was Monroe's lawyer. This is at 10:30. I never heard that before. 
And yet, we're being told... She wasn't dead at the 10.30. No, that she, she, was, she was dead at 12.45 or, or something right, like that. Yes. So she talked to several people at the time in between. And again, Eunice Murray kept changing her story, obviously, yes. because if she was involved, she, yes. she was tripping over herself. Is it true that she left the country and wasn't questioned again? I don't know about her. I knew Ralph Greenson, and uh, I didn't know her at all. And it was very surprising to me to find out that they were part of a group together. Um, and I, I don't know anything beyond that. Did you ever question Greenson? No. <laughs> no, remember, this happened uh, 40 years before I ever started writing a book about it. Right, right, okay. No, I never questioned Greenson. And the... I, I knew him because uh, I was a professor at the USC Medical School, and he used to come and lecture there. But aside from that, that was our only connection. All right, let's go to the phones uh, for Dr. Jack Haddam, and we say hello to Elsa in Toronto. Hello, Elsa, good morning. Yes, hello. I'm going to ask you, I read a book on Marilyn, and what they said that uh, when they did the autopsy on her body, they found needle uh, prick marks on the back on the shoulder, which she could not have possibly injected herself on her own. Right. And also... Uh, doctor, what they were saying was that she, because she was good friends with Frank Sinatra, and he gave her a dog, and because of the mafia connection, she called the dog Math, she <clears> was also going to go to the mafia, because this was one way she could really hurt Robert Kennedy, uh, since uh, Robert was fighting the mafia. Can I have your comments on this, please? Well, I have no information about the mafia connection, but I'm pretty sure that Marilyn was not... She actually was was going to talk to the newspapers. She had threatened to have a press, press conference the day after her death. And so that was the big uh, scare. And, and this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the country was in high alert at that time. Uh, but I don't know anything about a mafia connection outside of the fact that she had a lot of orgies at Frank Sinatra's ranch with Robert Kennedy. My word. All right, we'll take a time out. Dr. Jack Haddam stays with us. The book is Marilyn Monroe, Murder by Consent. We'll also get to your calls. Rose is in Guelph, Ontario. You're up next. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Ah, that's uh, Marilyn Monroe, and it's uh, 50th, uh, 50 years uh, since she passed away, or murdered, or was tricked into committing suicide, uh, according to uh, Jack Haddam. Dr. Jack Haddam, retired clinical psychologist, uh, who was working on the suicide prevention um, uh, line uh, center in, in um, Los Angeles, 
about a week after Marilyn died and was asked to investigate the suicide. Uh, now, let's uh, go back to the phones and say hello to Rose, who's been waiting patiently in Guelph, Ontario. Hello, Rose. Good morning. Hi, Richard. Good morning. I have a, I have a question for your guest. All right, yes. Dr. Jack Haddam, go ahead. Okay, first about the traffic ticket. He said that it was traced to Bobby Kennedy. Yes. And I find that really hard to understand because surely he didn't drive his own car from his no, home no. wherever that car, was. It was a chauffeur-driven car, and the okay. chauffeur got the ticket. But the policeman recorded that Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford were in the back seat. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he didn't second... get the ticket. Okay, so the second thing I had to say was... Uh, why would Marilyn be tricked into committing suicide, faking her suicide, because she thought the studio would take her back when they released her because of her erratic behavior and her continual tardiness to the set? And they also yeah. blamed her for Clark Gable's heart attack in the last film they had together, which was both their last films, The Misfits. Right. Why do you she think blamed a suicide herself attempt that, would help her? Pardon me? She blamed herself for that death, as well as Montgomery Cliff's death. Okay, but also the, a suicide attempt wouldn't really help her cause to be accepted back with open arms because it would just prove her that she was more, unstable more and unreliable. Yes. yes, that's true, but <laughs> we're not looking at what she was feeling at the time. Uh, it, it's, you know, logically, it makes no sense. But Marilyn was not a logical person. She had a disorder which made her want to do what people she trusted suggested that she do. It's called a borderline personality disorder. She was very malleable with people she trusted, and she trusted Peter Lawford. She didn't trust Peter, uh, Bob Kennedy. But nevertheless, she was easily convinced to do things which made no sense. Thanks for the call, Rose, in uh, Guelph. And, of course, it, it, uh, the idea was not to convince 20th Century Fox to take her back. They weren't going to. The idea was to trick Marilyn into thinking if she did this, they might take her back. Yes. So, uh, now, did, did, did Peter float this idea, or was it Bobby or both of them together? That, that I she... think Peter mostly. Because at this point, Bobby had already told her he wasn't going to divorce, correct? Right. So she, yeah. wouldn't, have, she wouldn't have been interested in hearing anything from Bobby at this point. No. Not at all. Although I, I don't really know what happened there. Uh, I know the private detective knows, but I don't know. So um, then I'm just trying to, th to figure out how this would have worked. Uh, uh, Peter or Bobby then instructs her psychiatrist at the time, Ralph Greenson, to administer, was it a barbiturate? Was it Nembutal? What was it? Yeah, it was a barbiturate. And it was on top of other barbiturates barbiturates that she'd been given by her physician. So it was a second dose. And so Marilyn starts to feel a little bit uh, groggy, and she's waiting for, I guess, the ambulance to show up to revive her. And when no, the, for them to revive her. Or for her, them to revive Eunice her. Murray to revive her. And when they don't, she picks up the phone and she calls... No, no. No? When they don't, she gets a call from uh, Joe DiMaggio Jr. Okay, and that's when she says... And that's when she tells him, and he tells his father... That Bobby Kennedy's doing yeah, this Yeah, he me. was at Camp Pendleton at the time. Right, right. Jr. was. Now, 
It's interesting, you know, Joe DiMaggio never remarried. Marilyn was apparently the love of his life. Yes. Of course, he sent roses to her every day, yes. I think, for five years or something after she died. Yes. Why didn't Joe ever speak of what Joe Jr. told him about Bobby Kennedy? Well, he did in the FBI files, apparently, because they say specifically that he was going to kill Robert Kennedy when he got out of office in the files. So they must have heard it somehow. Right, right. I don't know how, but that's what they heard. But that's he, what they wrote down. But he never, in public anyway... Well, Bobby Kennedy got killed, you know, right. very shortly thereafter. Uh, six years later, yes. Oh, was it six years? Okay. Well, he was guess he was waiting for him to stop running for office. Or maybe it was just talk on his part. Right, right. Well, and let's not forget, the Kennedy family, pretty powerful. Yes. Um, Very. So one wouldn't necessarily want to be speaking ill of one of the Kennedys. Right. If they were capable of killing Marilyn, who else would they kill? Exactly, yes. Dr. Jack Haddam stays with us. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into the murder, by consent, of Marilyn Monroe, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Dr. Jack Haddam is with us, retired clinical psychologist from Los Angeles, the author of Marilyn Monroe, Murder by Consent, A Psychologist's Journey with Death. And again, just to summarize, uh, the idea is that Marilyn Monroe had had an affair with Jack Kennedy, then had an affair with Robert Kennedy. When Robert Kennedy basically spurned her, told her he was not going to get a divorce and marry her. She threatened to hold a press conference. And, of course, she had kept this red diary containing all sorts of, who knows, state secrets, keeping in mind this is at the height of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where, where um, Americans were, uh, well, the world, really, uh, were walking on eggshells thinking this could be the end of the world, quite literally. That's what the mindset was. So if the CIA and the FBI, both of whom were surveilling her during her tryst with Robert Kennedy, suspected that she might spill the beans, some, some state secret relating to the Cuban Missile Crisis, one can understand why they might decide she had to go. In any event, Jack Haddam details in his book Murder by Consent that Peter Lawford and Bobby Kennedy convinced her, probably Peter Lawford primarily, convinced Marilyn that if she faked another suicide attempt, she might win some sympathy, get her job back at 20th Century Fox. And the plan was that she would take these barbiturates. She was already taking sleeping pills. She would be revived at the last moment by her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, and her psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson. But when they didn't revive her, and when she realized what was happening, she called out for help, but it was too late. Dr. Jack Haddam, uh, interesting, someone just emailed um, this to me. Yes. Apparently in 1985, People Weekly, uh, it was a magazine, their cover story reported that 2020, a popular ABC News uh, magazine program, 2020 had canceled a segment about Monroe's relationship with the Kennedys and the circumstances of her death. Barbara Walters, Hugh Downs, and Geraldo Rivera were reported to have reacted angrily to the cancellation the staffs of both the BBC and 2020 had been working on this story, 
And all of these investigations, it started after the 1979 death of Ralph Greenson. Uh. During the BBC investigation, they had interviewed Eunice Murray. Eunice Murray initially, for the cameras anyway, repeated the same story that she had told the police in 1962. Mm -hmm. Then, as the camera crew started to pack up, she was heard to say, why at my age do I still have to cover this thing? Uh Unknown to her, the microphone was on, and then Murray went on to admit that Monroe Monroe had known the Kennedys. She then volunteered that on the night of the actress's death, she said, quote, when the doctor arrived, she was not dead, end quote. Uh There you go. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I know she had a part in this. There was no question about it. And so did Dr. Greenson. How has... Uh, I, I don't see how they could have been controlled except for the fact that Kennedy was the attorney general and knew something about them. Bobby Kennedy was, you know, beloved. And, and there are many, myself included, who think had he lived, he may have even been a better president than Jack. Yeah. Um, how has your book... Been, I know others have, have mentioned this, and the FBI files came out, in, in, um, you know, alleging that Bobby Kennedy was involved in this plot. But have, has there been any sort of backlash against you because Bobby's so beloved? <laughs> everybody says that I should have had a backlash, but everybody is dead who was involved in this. And so there's never been a backlash. Oddly enough, I mean, people keep saying, aren't you crazy to have written this? Isn't it dangerous? But I have never heard of anybody from the government bothering me whatsoever. But were you, were you a fan of Bobby Kennedy? Yes, and also Jack. So how did this make I you feel? I was a big fan of both of them mm-hmm. until I found out what was going on. But that was four years ago, so uh, until four years ago, I was a big fan. Now, uh, the whole world knows a lot more about Jack Kennedy and his uh, problems with women. And in I fact, think, it may have been his indiscretions that were at least partially responsible for his assassination. The theory is that the intelligence groups felt that not only was he addicted to painkillers, but he yeah. was having all of these uh, affairs with women, and um, who knows what he was telling. In one case, uh, he jumped into the sack with a, uh, a spy from East Germany, And so that may have been the reason they had to take him out. He was too dangerous. Well, I don't know about that conspiracy, but I know that Jack Kennedy uh, found that women relieved the pain of his Addison's disease, at least according to him. Interesting, interesting. Uh, You mentioned that the conspiracy uh, to cover up Marilyn's murder extended to the L.A. County Coroner's Office. Well, not the the coroner's office, the police police okay. department chief parker covered up a lot of evidence and uh so it was right at the top of the police department not not the coroner the coroner uh thomas Noguchi, Kirby, uh oh. just didn't want to touch it so he passed it on to us and he passed it on to an untested uh county coroner called Thomas Noguchi. Noguchi. Noguchi, yes. Yeah. Who would later and, perform the autopsy on Robert Kennedy. Right. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, he'd gotten a little more experience by then, I guess. I know. They they made us deputy coroners. I was a deputy coroner. Is that right? 
Yeah, they made every one of our scientists at the suicide center deputy coroners. And did you have any inkling back then that there was something no. fishy about this story? No. Plus, I was involved in other things that I was doing in terms of research. And, and it was an intense, satisfying, exciting year that I spent there. I mean, it was extraordinary. Because of Marilyn, they put our number in the newspapers and in magazines, and our hotline started getting calls from people as far away as Brazil. The Suicide Prevention Center hotline. Yeah, and I was on the hotline along with the other people there. And uh, my God, I mean, you'd get calls in which people told you that you have five minutes to save my life. And we learned how to do that in five minutes. Yeah, I think that's important. We should spend a few minutes, uh, uh, Jack, talking about that, because that's one of the things that, uh, as you say, it's, you've put it in the book, and it's important to talk about, is is your work with the Suicide Prevention Center uh, and, and what you learned and how you can save lives, how anyone... Yes, could anyone. Potentially save the difficult. life of a suicide, someone who's, who's attempting suicide. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. How, how do you do it? Well, first of all, what we discovered, first of all, what we learned is how to recognize that somebody was a serious suicide, how to stop the suicide from happening, and then how to treat it afterwards. Now, the most important thing that we learned, because we only had a couple of minutes on the phone, and sometimes people would speak in broken English from another country, is, one, we made clear to them that we cared whether they lived or died. And it was important to us that they stayed alive. And secondly, the most important is we would always ask them, how long have you suffered from this feeling? And they would say three months, six months, a year, two years, and the answer to that was, would you give us a week to help you? And that seemed to resonate with most people, because it, it made some kind of crazy logical sense. Right. If you've suffered this long, what's one more week? Yeah, what's one more week? And that made a difference. I never lost anybody in that whole over year and a half that I was at the suicide center, as far as I know, of course. Um, and uh, and we had the most suicidal people in the world. At our, we had people walking into the clinic with a knife in their stomach. Oh my they, lord! And waiting in the waiting room for us to see them. Oh my lord! And then we had people trying to jump off our roof. We actually tackled one person who was trying to jump. We were on the fourth floor, and an uh, old county hospital building, which was meant to be torn down. And, 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 and I mean, this it is... was really uh, exciting and uh, very uh, important that we learn these skills. And it's um, interesting that, that uh, Marilyn's death really brought exposure, even though you contend yes. she didn't die of a suicide, but it, it really uh, right. brought a great deal of... Um, yeah, uh, it focused the whole world on us. Awareness to this, yes. We had about 19 scientists working at the center at the time, from all over the world, by the way. Did, did the fact that it was the Cold War, it was the, 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 you know, the Cuban yes. Missile Crisis, have anything to do with the, the suicide rates going up, or attempted suicide? No. No? No, it didn't. It almost had me committing suicide. I, was, I heard when, at the last moment when the Russian ships 
were approaching our ships, and the uh, and if we were going to stop them, it would start the war. Uh, the sirens in L.A. went off, and I was certain in the middle of the night that we were all going to die. My word. I remember you you telling me that you were driving in L.A., and you grabbed your wife's hand, and you squeezed it, and you said, I love you, dear? Right, you yes. Thought, you thought that was the end? Yes, I absolutely thought that was the end. Well, that was two years before, well, a little over two years, or not quite two years before I was born, uh, <laughs> so obviously I don't remember, I but, I mean, it's hard to imagine how anxious people would have been at that point. Well, what was most people didn't notice is that the troops were being recalled in the newspapers. Little articles said, Report to your base. And I, I started noticing those. And I thought, oh, my God, we're in the middle of the next Third War War. Hard to spec, uh, speculate at this point, but had Marilyn not been murdered, do you think she would have followed through and held that press conference the next day to get back at Bobby or Jack? And, and oh, No. Yes, absolutely. She would have. Oh, sure. Why do you believe First that? First of all, Marilyn didn't have the greatest judgment in the world. And, and what people don't understand is Marilyn Monroe is a figment of Norma Jean's imagination. She created Marilyn, and she even said, people don't love me, they love Marilyn. But she was not Marilyn. She just played Marilyn all of her life because she had no a, a self-identity at all. Given her background, she didn't know who she was. And so she devised Marilyn as an alter ego. But she knew the difference between her and Marilyn. And do you think she would have divulged what was in that red diary? She might have uh, acted like she was going to. I don't know whether she would have. And where did this red diary end up again? At Sidney Skolsky, a uh, Hollywood publicist, five years later, who never said what was in it either. But by then, nobody cared. I'd so still. I'd Cuban like to see. Cuban Missile Crisis was over. Wouldn't you like to see what's in that red diary, Jack? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I don't know where it is now. That was what Robert Kennedy was after when he visited her in the afternoon. Indeed, and she it cost her her life. Yes. Well, I. It started with her singing "Happy Birthday" to Jack Kennedy. That's what started the progress down to her death. Because Jack then canceled his connection with her. And Bobby did the same, and that infuriated her. And here we are, 50 years later, still, yes, still um, speculating, isn't it? It is, Dr. Jack Haddam. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Are we all finished? We are. We are, okay, sir. Okay. Thank you. Good all luck. Right. Good night, Jack. Good night. Murder by consent, Marilyn Monroe. All right. Uh, my thanks to David Gaskin for technical production. Back next week. We're going to talk about the uh, the shooting spree in Aurora, Colorado, and uh, whether uh, this uh, young Holmes character, who's facing 24 counts of murder, he killed 12 people, but uh, he's charged 24 times in order to uh, double their odds of a conviction, I guess. Um, now that we've had time to grieve the victims of that shooting, we're going to look into whether or not Holmes may be a Manchurian candidate. I'll talk to Robert Duncan, the author of Hacking the Human Mind, Hope you'll be along for that one. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, 
proclaimed from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.